0: This week on Hangar Talk, the FAA makes your job just a little bit easier with student pilot certificates.
1: AOPA hosted a symposium for 200 high school STEM educators. Flight design gets a little bit of a lifeline. And we're all waiting to see what the new administration means for general aviation pilots.
0: All right, Dave, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do it, Ian. Welcome to Hangar Talk. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And David, uh, this week, this almost never happens, it seems like. The FAA is actually going to make things easier. They're going to make it go faster they're going to let you get a student pilot certificate a little bit easier now. They're
1: backtracking a little bit over some changes that were implemented earlier this year that it made, it, uh, it made it a little bit more difficult for student pilots to get on board and start their training.
0: Yeah. So now um, instead of just having to go get your medical certificate and the, uh, the doctor just issuing you the student pilot certificate right there in the office, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to solo, um, you have to go through the IACRA and they do a background check. And it's this long process. Well, they say now it's going to be a little bit easier. It
1: is. And it looks like that uh, the changes went into effect November the 3rd. So uh, we're talking about what we refer to as the birthday solo mm-hmm. uh, it, kind of a rule. And it was restored last July after several months of not being able to do that. So what does that mean for students that are just now starting out? You're an instructor.
0: Yeah, for- it's it's good, actually. IACRA is a, a little bit of a pain to work through. It's the FAA's um, certification application system. Um, don't ask me what the acronym means because I have no idea. (laughs) Right, right, right. I'll I'll tell our listeners if they want to know. Yeah, let's
1: hear it. The, The Integrated Airman Certification and Rating Application.
0: Yeah, IACRA. Uh-huh. Uh, well,
1: let's take a, a, a step backwards. Have, yeah. have you had to go online to IACRA recently and do anything with it?
0: Yeah, I think the last time I went might have been for – it's either for my CFI renewal or the helicopter add-on. I can't remember which. But And
1: I did too when I recently got my seaplane rating yeah. out west. I had to go on there, and that was that was the first time I had to do the IACRA application right, and okay. ask for the basics, yeah. uh, name, address, things like that. It asked me – how many hours I had, because I was doing an add-on rating. Mm-hmm. He asked me how many hours I had. And I actually had to go and tabulate all that stuff out. One, one key thing for our podcast listeners, I will give them a tip that my C-Plane instructor gave me, and that is to copy down or somehow screenshot. shoot what you're filling out on that application because it does time out. It's a a government application online, and and it could time out, and you just don't want to lose what you got. But anyway, getting back to the story at hand.
0: Yeah, no, and actually that's a good point because a lot of people never total up their logbooks. And so, like, let's say if you lose your logbook, Uh having that IACRA application and, you know, having a copy of that is really good. Great backup. Yeah, you can uh, basically record your time based on that. but. Anyway, yeah, so um, students who are getting into this, you know, there was, it used to be you could solo pretty much whenever you're ready by getting that from the doctor, but now you have to go through the and there was a waiting period, but now it's, right. the FAA has shortened it. So not only, um, something that AOPA helped to work on, not only will people be able to solo on their birthday, um, but hopefully that whole application process, I think, what are they saying? Less than a week now, hopefully. Yeah.
1: The problem for a lot of students, and th- we ran into this at Liberty University when we documented the uh, six students that were soloing hmm. this past summer. A lot of potential pilots really want to solo on their on their birthday. Yeah. By restoring this ability, the students can still celebrate that a uh, major aviation accomplishment along with their birthday. It's just like a rite of passage. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Student pilots who have not yet reached their 14th, birthday will be able to apply for their student pilot certificate through IACRA is what our story says. Yeah. No earlier than 90 days before their 14th birthday. And it <laughs> goes on to say that once it's approved and vetted, they'll get an email notification and they can log back in and they
0: can update and print out the certificate. Cool. Yeah. So um, I suppose if, you're, if your son or daughter is used to dealing with the the motor vehicle department and all of its rules. Accra will be no different. hopefully got an instructor to help you through it. So
1: I read a little piece here about the 14th birthday. Yeah. But now that's mainly for what glider yeah, pilots. Yeah, They can still on their 14th birthday. And that's for, amazing. and for single engine fixed wing pilots, yeah. 16th 16. That's right. Yep. And we talked a little bit about hot air balloons last night.
0: Yeah. Time. Is that 14 as well? I want to say that Colin Graham told me it was 14. We'll check yeah. on that and try to report back. Yeah.
1: That's, whew,
0: that's awesome. Cool. All right. Other good news. Flight Design, which which has been going through a bit of a, a tough time lately, they've got the CT, that uh, really cool LSA, actually very popular. Yeah, it really it, has been. Um, they've we, had this U.S. distributorship up in Connecticut, that, right? Um, I think it was German made. Uh, yep. Not anymore.
1: No, they're uh, they've got a little bit of an investment from overseas now, but was originally a German company, Flight Design GmbH, and they uh, entered a receivership this past uh, spring and February, really, the end of the winter. Yeah. And um, now, you know, taking a step backwards again, didn't AOPA give away one of those flight design airplanes as one of
0: the? No. See, this is the thing with LSA is A lot of them, if you're not in the whole LSA world, they look similar, right? It was the Remos. Oh, man. (laughs) Sorry.
1: (laughs) That's all right. But flight Uh, design was one of the very popular
0: LSA airplanes. It was one of the big sellers. And, in fact, Remos even went through a a thing where it it had some tough financial times. Ah, It's coming back. They've got a new airplane. Gotcha. Um, so
1: Aero Jones is a Taiwanese-based company that started manufacturing the CTLs in 2016.
0: Now they also have, um, and we'll see what what's going to happen with this. Flight Design was also developing the C4, four for four place. This was going gotcha. to be a uh, certified aircraft, a uh, four like, place flight like design. a
1: new version of a Cessna 172. Yeah,
0: composite design. Yeah, to compete with the Technum actually. Gotcha. Uh, that four seat Technum. So. We'll see if that ever actually happens. Uh, that would be cool. It's great to see new development. So
1: Now, um, I, now the one thing that I think we need to look, look for uh, and, and keep our ear to the ground is that you know, some of the foreign investments here, which are helping to save general aviation, we, we have a new administration coming on board. We'll talk about this a little bit later in Hangar Talk. But just wondering what might happen in the future.
0: Yeah, you know? it will be interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, foreign-owned company uh, trying to uh, export stuff to the U.S., you know what's going to happen there in terms of tariffs or whatever? Right. Yeah, we don't know. That's we'll right. See. So, all right. Now, uh, I want you to talk about this next one because you were there. I we was there. We hosted a symposium.
1: AOPA had the second annual high school STEM symposium, and for our podcast listeners that don't know what STEM means, we're not talking about trees. We're talking about <laughs> or plants. We're talking about science, technology, engineering, and math. Mm-hmm. And this is a hugely popular subject matter for high schools and middle schools, and really even down to the elementary school level.
0: Yeah, actually my son does STEM projects at school, and they they label them as such, so yeah.
1: It's great, and uh, what we're trying to do is AOPA wants to get a curricula together so that high school teachers can begin to introduce aviation on a real basic level, but also something that's fun for the students so they can enjoy it and get involved, maybe foster a little bit more activity and a little bit more interest in aviation or aerospace engineering, hmm. anything like that. Yeah. So I went to our STEM symposium, it was out in Seattle at the Museum of Flight, if you've never been, it's just awesome. you got to go. They have a Concord out there at oh, the museum. Wow. That's great. They have all kinds of neat things. It's right near where Boeing started yeah, out yeah. Near, um, in Seattle, Washington. There, were, uh, there was a lot of interest and a lot of enthusiasm by the teachers. Hmm. I sat next to an instructor from Alaska, and he said, you know, aviation is the way of life there. Yeah. If you're a pilot, you can't really brag about it being in Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> but but that's the rarity. And um, also uh, met a, a teacher from California that wants to bring an aviation program to her school. They don't have one yet.
0: Oh, wow. So she came to learn how to Ex- do it, basically.
1: Exactly. She oh, did. Wow. She did. Huh. And they were really encouraged by a former astronaut, Nicole Stott, yeah. who said that she started her aviation career by going up with her daddy yeah. in a small airplane and looking out over their neighborhood. Neighborhood, it really encouraged her, and she followed the STEM approach, yep. and that's how she got involved in in uh, the astronaut program yeah. for NASA.
0: Yeah, and- she she is cool. I've talked to her, um, interviewed her actually for a story, and met her at at the last one. Um, she's amazing, and and now you know what she's doing now. Tell me, she's uh, she's an artist Oh wow now. I mean, in addition to supporting STEM activities and speaking on behalf of STEM and everything else, she said that the the view from space is just so incredible and being in space is so incredible that she never felt like she could describe it to people in words yeah and so she started doing Painting art and stuff as yeah. a result uh, to trying to communicate how she felt she showed a few pictures
1: from outer space that she shot looking back on the earth and they yeah. were incredible and she did describe that feeling as mm-hmm. well I also must say she showed up in her blue astronaut suit yeah <laughs> and her flight suit yeah and she told the crowd that she was happy she could still fit in and everything yeah right she's a definite ambassador for aviation and yeah. really well respected just an easy going person to talk to yeah so we did have about 200 teachers there. Um, we talked a little bit about some scholarships that some of the, the teachers and the programs needed and wanted or wanted to hmm. find out how they could get to get some money to partner up and things like that. Yeah. But also, the, I would just say, Ian, yeah, that there was an overall very positive attitude, a lot of good learning going on. And um, even across the street at Ray's Aviation High School, yeah. the students brought some of the attendees over there and gave them a tour of the this aviation-specific high school. And the first thing they did was high-five people on the way in.
0: It was so cool. That's fun. A lot of energy there. Yeah. So they it was the whole gamut. I mean, and this is one thing I've learned with this initiative that has that really surprised me is that there's everything from, you know, you've heard about aviation clubs, right? I mean, my college right. had an aviation club. Part of
1: our You Can Fly initiative. Yeah.
0: Yeah, right. I've been amazed at the variety. It's like you've got the club, and then you've got maybe there's a class, and then maybe there's a like a – you know, career and technical pathway, all up to this this Raysbeck. It's incredible, the variety of programs.
1: It is. And uh, that's a really good indicator, that Raysbeck High School, of how far you can take something like this. Mm. They were embraced by the community. And also, the Seattle and Northwest region in general has a lot of aviation. Yeah. But that's not unlike other parts of the country. For instance, we had one of our fly-ins in Tullahoma, Tennessee, huge aviation background there. And that's, yeah. you know, down the Southeast. Yeah. And I think you could point up to, you know, the Northeast and there's a lot of aviation going on there as well as the Midwest. Yeah. So there are definitely places around the country that are already very conducive to this type of environment, but we want to bring it everywhere.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, what's what's been really interesting about like Raysback and then West Michigan Aviation um, is that, you know, I, I think I I maybe had a sense that private schools existed out there where you could send your son or daughter to yeah. an aviation private high school. Right, But a lot of these are public charter they schools.
1: They are, or just regular public schools. Yeah,
0: and so you, like your son or daughter, if you live in that uh, anywhere in the uh, district, they can potentially go there. It would be really an interesting thing. And
1: one thing to keep in mind for the parents that are listening out here in, in aviation podcast land, the industry itself is looking to fill over 600,000 jobs for pilots, mechanics, aerospace engineers within the next 20 years. And that's according to Boeing. So that's a pretty big, you know, void to fill. So this will be a really important thing to get going. ALPA is partnering up with Purdue University to help some of this curricula get introduced. Mm -hmm. And uh, a little bit of the minutiae, not going to get into it uh, too far, but there's going to be four pathways that teachers can, can go down. And then the teachers can pull the entire pathway or just one or two courses from that. So it'll be an interesting thing to Mm, see. So flexible. Yeah, and uh, you can pull one or two key things, or you can pull the whole curricula and and teach it that way.
0: Very cool. Very cool. All right, so um, that's a lot of good news, I think, a lot of development. We're going to transition a little bit to um, maybe some restrictions or bringing things back a little bit. Uh, This TFR that was issued uh, this week, you know, when we're recording this uh, less than a week after the election, um, and I think it was the day after the election, um, FAA issued a TFR, uh, basically, uh, around downtown Manhattan, around the Trump tower, President-elect's yeah. residence. Because that's where he lives. Yep. Um, which I guess is probably not uncommon. I don't remember. Not to, at all. Yeah. You
1: had that in Kinnebunk, Port Maine. Yeah. You had that out in Texas. Yeah. President Bush. Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. In Chicago for Obama. Sure. Yep.
0: One thing is, you know, if you've flown in that area, you've got the Hudson corridor. It's sort of a classic, uh, visual. Beautiful. Beauty. Yeah that you can take, and that was shut down as a result of this TFR.
1: Which would also, could potentially, have affected a lot of the helicopter ops that we were talking about earlier and some of the sightseeing operations, as well as the commuter options there. Yeah, Um, so AOPA got involved,
0: and uh, it didn't take long, did
1: it? Looks like just about 24 hours before things turned right around, Yeah. and uh, I think you were just telling us that there's a little notch that was cut out of this corridor?
0: Yeah, so we've got, I think, roughly half the river is open now, so, if you wanted to continue to fly the Hudson uh, visually, uh, as maybe you have in the past or you want to experience it for the first time, you can do that now. Still. Yeah, still, I should <laughs> say. That's right. And if you want to operate in the TFR, there are some, uh, some ways to do that. It's sort of like the outer ring of a presidential. You know, it's like right. squawk and talk. Okay. Um, so, it's not totally off limits.
1: No, I, and I, I haven't flown that corridor but I really want to do that, and I'm yeah. so glad that AOPA jumped into action immediately and reviewed all the facts at hand and really stuck up for our members. It's something that we do so well. Yeah, you know, We rarely, on hanger Talk, we rarely blow our own horn that much. <laughs> but, this is, but this is one key thing yeah. that, that folks really do need to realize, that they have someone fighting for them in their back pocket.
0: Yeah, it's a good point, and it's, it's something that's, uh, well, you can see it. I mean, it's like on the ninth. A graphic was issued that blocked the entire river, and on the 10th, one was issued that blocked, that was much less uh, restrictive, and that's because we got involved. And so that's just a, a nice, really quick, prime example of what advocacy means.
1: Absolutely, and don't forget, pilots always review the NOTAMs before yeah. you fly. Yeah, because... You never know when something like this could happen.
0: Yeah, so obviously we mentioned that that's, uh, that was issued over Trump Tower, um, uh-huh. the new president-elect's residence. Donald J. Trump? Yep, so... I don't think we want to get too much into politics. No, but we we don't do that too much here. No, no, uh, but we can talk policy. Yeah, we can. So our our top story, what we'll talk about is how will a Trump administration impact general aviation?
1: Now, Donald Trump used to own an airline back in the day. Yep, and. He frequently has been seen, you know, in and out of his aircraft and a couple of helicopters. Yep. So he is no stranger to general aviation operations,
0: clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, as somebody who's on businesses, he understands the value of business aviation. We know that. Right. You know, he he used, as you mentioned, the 757 as a... uh essentially a campaign platform would sure. speak in front of it at events. Yeah, it was a great background. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, very uh very much and in fact, I remember even before he ran there was a YouTube video. Have you ever seen this? Tell um, me about it. It's uh it's a tour of the airplane. No, I have not. Yeah, it's fun. It's um I don't know if it's a flight attendant or or somebody takes you through the airplane and they show you kind of the gold plated uh seat belts and all this other oh, stuff. Oh, neat. <laughs> so like you get that. to see the inside of the airplane. <laughs> but uh, yeah, And his own's owns helicopters flies them uh, presumably.
1: Frequently in, in and around New York. I yeah. mean, that's, I mean, to get to his properties. Yeah, And that's one thing that you said, Ian, and it's so true of a, lot of a lot of business people, they do use general aviation and that maximizes their time. Yeah. And in fact, I've, I've seen that in action where, you know, a, an, an official will jump in a plane and as they're going from point A to point B, They'll take care of business. They'll write, help write speeches. They'll talk about policy. They'll really get their next week's calendar in order. Yeah. So that GA helps you do that. The alternative is waiting in line and running yeah. through the masses and things like that. So GA does help out a lot, and
0: these politicians really do understand that. Yeah. So um, what do you think? I mean, other than him, sort of. Under maybe knowing and, and hopefully understanding general aviation, uh, what what do you think is going to happen?
1: We've heard from Trump on the campaign trail that he was talking about, you know, uh, a bold new plan for roads, bridges, tunnels, airports, railroads, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And we do need some infrastructure upgrades along yeah. the way. It would really be helpful to us. And next gen aviation concepts are already here, mm-hmm. already doing that. So I'm just hoping that um, that he understands that GA plays such an important role training role, uh, commerce role, you know, yeah. really helping spur the economy along at a pretty good clip, and especially at some aviation-rich places that we already mentioned. Yeah. And uh, I hope that we won't see any anything that's real onerous to, to general aviation pilots.
0: Yeah, it's hard to say. Uh, I suppose anybody's just sort of guessing. I mean, you know, most of uh, AOPA's advocacy work has been, uh, at, obviously, at the congressional level or the right. or through the administration and through the FAA or DOT. I will say, congressionally, it's like most of the folks that we work with are back. Yeah, our
1: story says that we have a couple of losses on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Yeah, and uh, which we're sorry to see that, but we're hoping that our, the folks that are already there and will will be there are still very powerful aviators. Yeah, you know, people that have helped us through the years. Senator yeah. Inhofe is one.
0: Yep, that's right. So Representative Schuster, um, right. who we worked with on the House side. Uh, He is back and and presumably will still run the committee. And so um, we'll see. You know, he was a a proponent of user fees. So I think that will come up again. Yeah, I think it might. I do think that'll come up again. You know, you mentioned something, the business side, um, you know, with trade deals. um, Yeah. You know, who knows? We'll have to
1: keep an eye on that. Yeah. I'm a little worried about that. And uh, and as far as there's been a lot of investment uh, into general aviation from uh, Asia. Yeah. I'm a little worried about that. And you could say the same thing about automobile makers. Yeah, I talked to a buddy of mine just this weekend, Eric Seals, and he works for the Detroit Free Press. And they're just as worried about what would happen to you know Ford and GM yeah. with overseas investment. So um, we'll see if there are tariffs, like uh, things similar to what happened in the 1980s when uh, Harley-Davidson was competing against Honda. Hmm. And you and I are both motorcyclists. I don't yeah. know if you remember that all of a sudden the engines that were on these bikes were much smaller. Yeah. So they didn't have to pay as much of a tariff. I wonder if there'll be something that's based sort of like that or if uh, or if they'll just get bypassed altogether, and that was that was basically to pull harley Davidson out of the brink of disaster. They were hmm. basically going bankrupt at that time, hmm. so um, we do have a lot of aviation firms and uh, manufacturers that, that really need some help, yeah, we need to keep things going um, so I'd be interested to see you know what the what what if any the trade policy will change
0: yeah, and I know just from um, speaking from the f a a side, I mean we have no idea yet who, who the administrator will be. But uh, as part of his uh, first 100-day plan, I know Uh that it was released before the election, Um, there was a note on there about regulation. I think – don't quote me on this. I think it said for every regulation that would be issued, two had to be taken away, I think. And now I don't know – Oh. I don't know what the possibilities for that are. I'm not really sure the the legalities of all that sort of thing.
1: Well, now, so, you know, I'm relatively new to AOPA and uh, monitoring the FAA and things like that. From this standpoint, does it automatically mean we have a new administrator?
0: Well, no. So they're on terms. I think five-year terms. So um, it overlaps a little bit. It can anyway. overlap. I mean, I think, you know, they, they serve for the president. So I think the president has the potential to come in and clear house if he or okay. she wants to. Okay. Um, well, he at this point. But, uh, you know, whether or not that happens, I think, is up to the person. And, and otherwise, they're there for five-year terms, I think. That's so, the administrator works.
1: who worked has got a five-year term.
0: Yeah, although... Although I believe that was coming up anyway. I see. So there will be an administrator, a new administrator sometime soon. And of course, there will be a new transportation secretary, oh, no doubt. Oh, ma- that totally makes sense. Yeah.
1: In fact, there was some information about that today. Just some of the uh, oh, websites. Well, they were just supposing who oh, it might be. Oh, speculating. Yeah. Speculating, who was, right.
0: Who are they saying? Oh, man, I'll have to dig that up. For out. transportation. I'm curious. Uh, it, I'm yeah. not
1: going to get involved in that. I'm gonna say, <laughs> just saying it might happen. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, And I guess it really would depend on who the transportation secretary would be. And you could very well have someone that's uh, steeped in general aviation and has an
0: aviation background. That could help us a lot. You could. Yeah. And and the little, the few appointments that we know so far are people who have already worked on the campaign or were already friends or or whatever. So not surprising uh, appointments, I'll say. Right, so, right. It's a little bit of payback
1: time, I think. Yeah. Although I, I was thinking that there was going to be a little bit more house cleaning uh,
0: than I've seen, you
1: know, so far. It's still very early. Yeah. Still in transition. So yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. We'll have to see. So, anyway, uh, we will obviously learn lots more about that um, over the next couple of weeks and in months uh, as the transition keeps trucking along. And uh, and until then, you know, our guests this week they've uh, they've been through a few presidents a few, uh, transitions like this. Oh, this
1: is a great pitch to <laughs> is it John and Martha
0: King. Yeah. Yeah. The Kings. Um, I, you know, I don't think they've served in any administrations yet, so maybe they'll be available. Maybe they could be co FAA administrators. Hey, if they probably are both up to it, <laughs> Yeah, you got, they a, probably chance, are. You got yeah. a chance
1: to meet and greet them at, uh, at, uh, air venture this year. I yeah. know you've known them for a number of years, but, uh, they're pretty cool people.
0: They really are. You know, we, yeah. um, it's funny because obviously, you know, you see them at events and we've talked through the years and I know their news and I know kind of what's going on at the company and everything else. We have breakfast every year at AirVenture. But this was the, really the first time here sitting down for Hangar Talk that I got to talk to them about kind of their history and their background and their flying together yeah. and they really are fascinating people.
1: They're a neat team together, too, to yeah. see them operate. Yep. They came out here to uh, to Frederick, Maryland, where AOPA is headquartered, and they came out for a visit a couple of weeks ago, too. Mm. And just watching them walk around the aircraft and get ready for a flight, yeah. it really was a team effort. Yeah, I was impressed.
0: It was. And so um, do you know how they address each other to be able to deal with that sort of marriage and crew situation? We'll probably have to listen to the podcast to find out. You got
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: so we're here at Oshkosh how many years have you guys been coming oh my
2: goodness Uh, we started selling course books and uh, uh, question and answer books in the about seventy.
3: uh, 75, 6, 7 yeah. in that era. So. And we started coming here. We had a booth selling uh, the question and answer books um, then, so. I,
2: I doubt if we've missed one since since 75.
3: That's what, 40 years? Yeah, wow.
2: something on, on the order of 40 years.
0: Yeah. yeah. And uh, taking me back a little bit, even before that, how did you get started flying? And how did you meet? And, and, and how did you decide to, to start? a business out of it.
2: Well, uh, first of all, we, we started flying because when we got just, we sold a business and got just a little bit of money, and the very first thing I wanted to do is get an airplane. And uh, Martha could see the handwriting on the wall, and she's not about to be someone who's going to be left behind in any way. I
3: wasn't going to sit home while he was out at the airport having fun I is out what of the he's airplane. trying to right. say. That's right, yeah. Right. yeah.
2: And, and so consequently, um, she we, we learned to fly. We got our check rides done within a day of each other. Right. Wow. Um, wow. Um, and Martha's always been a, only a little bit better pilot than I am. <laughs> uh, it all
3: depends time. on what kind of flying you're talking about. Uh,
2: She's she's ahead of the airplane. She knows what's about to happen next. uh,
3: But John got hooked on it really young because his father had an airplane, hmm. and John used to fly with his father and then later on with a family friend, and uh, he got as far as solo in high school, Hmm. but then decided that uh, he really ought to be saving his money in order to go to school, and uh, you were paying... The outrageous sum of how much was it for? I think it was
2: eight dollars an hour, Uh airplane and instructor. Um, but but if, if you don't have we eight dollars, that's a lot of money. <laughs> ought to
3: be careful with that number. I think it dates you, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I
2: think it probably does. So we got an airplane, got a little Cherokee One Hundred and Forty, and and took off and just flew all over the place in that airplane. I mean, uh, just uh, the day after we got our certificates, uh, we're down to Florida and the Bahamas and oh, wow. and uh, and.
3: And then when we were headed home, and uh, we had gotten our certificate. Uh, just before uh, Christmas. And we were headed back to Indiana, which is where, from Florida, uh, we lived in Indiana at the time. And the further north we got, the colder it got, and all of a sudden there was this white stuff on the ground again. And we looked at each other, and John said, shall we do it? And I said, sure. And we just hung a left and headed for California. <laughs> we, never, we
2: never went back home. We just turned left and went to California. and I guess what the, what an airplane did for us is it completely changed our lives it changed our view of the world it changed our view of the country and our changed ability. our view
3: of opportunity yes hmm. and
2: the ability to go places hmm. and do things and uh, ever since that moment um we've had an airplane almost continuously when we had a financial reverse and had to join flying clubs instead of owning an airplane that
3: didn't last very long and, and
2: I, I think we've Owns, uh, something on the order—it's—it's it's hard to know because we had some in business, some in personal, but something like 14 airplanes. But it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's more of a—it's what you couldn't call it a, a hobby. It was just a complete uh, change in our lifestyle.
3: Uh, you could call it an addiction, yeah, probably. Yeah, probably
2: more so than more so than a hobby. So we went um, we went broke in our first business after about ten years of struggle, and we said, "Wow, that hurt. Let's not do that anymore. Um, let's do something for the fun of it until a serious business comes along." So we started teaching ground schools for pilots, and the idea was to do that, have a good time, and eventually we'd find a serious business. And it's been uh, I think forty one years now, and we still haven't found. A serious business, so, so we're still looking for something serious. <laughs> yeah, but to do.
3: we're having fun. We're having a good time, and you know the people that you meet in aviation are so special, and the the um, uh, places that you get to go because you're a pilot and they're a pilot, and and you share so much. You know so much about each other just by knowing that that the other person is a pilot. Um, it's a very special, immediate relationship.
0: Hmm. So, Martha, you didn't—you uh, didn't have a flying background then. You—well, uh, my
3: father was in the Air Force, okay. but he had—I mean, no clue, no no idea that uh, they'd have a woman flying. Yeah. And uh, no encouragement whatsoever. He did not fly civilian at all. Okay. And. Um, um unfortunately he died before we started uh flying so i don't really know what he would have thought about that that Mm. that would have been interesting to have known you shared
2: a lot of things like uh, you know river floating and with him Uh, i i I think he would have been pleased it just just wouldn't have ever occurred to him right yeah that he would fly
0: yeah and now it's funny now uh, i guess i hadn't thought about this but you know, back even um, when you guys started the business, and and you said, you know, didn't want John to go to the airport and sort of leave you home. I mean, that's uh, really, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm sure you don't put a label on it, but it's like you're sort of a feminist back then. It's like well, you're going to be equals, and you guys are going to. Run this together. You're going to fly together, and and really, you're going to do this as partners. I, I, well,
3: actually, John's the feminist yeah. in our uh, yeah. marriage. Yeah, I'm G. the
2: woman's liver. Yeah. Um, we made the decision when we were walking around the campus holding hands and trying to figure out what life was going to be like, is that we were going to be equal equal partners in everything we did. So, um, and, and it's been that way, and we've been we're equal owners of the business, and and as we're, I said, we're
3: equally on the video. We share mm-hmm. the flying, trading legs mm-hmm. in the air airplane if, and,
2: uh, if we even give talks and and, and share the microphone and um, getting 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 along with a redhead while you're giving a talk is difficult uh,
3: uh, not as difficult sometimes as getting along in the airplane though well yeah.
2: we fixed that when i learned to call you captain oh okay. yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so, that's
0: and, uh, true i did want to ask you about that because um a lot of people of course uh don't even work with their spouses you guys not only work together you fly together and so there's all kinds of dynamics and you've had to work out a routine basically to make that work for you
3: the the routine is the same thing that we, we try to implement in the business which is that you have to give each other a lot of respect a lot of room and in the flying you have to work on the idea that because we're different personalities we're going to have different approaches to tasks and we're going to have different timing on when we do this or that or the other and I may do something just about 30 seconds later than John would have done it, which is enough time if you're not careful, and vice versa on other things. If you're not careful, that's just enough time for the person who would have done it 30 seconds earlier to come out and start saying, well, uh, it's time for you to do this, time for you to do that. And it's very easy for the person who's actually flying, to end up feeling like a voice-activated autopilot, mm. which is not very rewarding. So yeah. so one of the critical things is to give each other room and time and recognize that differences in style don't mean a difference in safety level.
2: And I, I we had a friend that we were complaining. We were both flight instructors, and we used to travel around uh, the country in a Cessna 340 and take turns flying and there was a tendency for each of us who was in the right seat to, to be instructing the other and uh, the, 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 the <laughs> even
3: the, though not invited to yeah well
0: you're instructors it's like re- you feel right, like you have right, to say right, something right, right. and
2: uh, and the person who was trying to instruct was um, annoyed because they were ignored and the person who was re- re- inadvertently receiving the instruction, instruction was annoyed because they uh, hadn't asked for, had for it they for any yeah. instruction and, and so so we were telling this to a friend, and he says, well, I can solve that problem for you. And I said, no, 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 we're, we, we would drive home from the airport not talking to each other with steam coming out of our ears, and he says, "I, you know, you can solve that with one word." And I said, "Okay, okay. What's the word?" And literally, he said the word is captain. And so, when we're in the aircraft together, and let's say I'm her co-pilot, I will call her captain. And our our airplane is fixed with headsets in every seat because it's be cruel and unusual punishment to <laughs> our passengers. Almost <laughs> always are all pilots. Yeah, yeah. Not, not know what we're doing up there. Yeah. So, so we, we use that, and and we have gotten into crew resource management. Really, we. We take great great pride in being a well coordinated crew, and we we love flying well as a team. Now,
3: and our passengers sometimes after a trip will will talk to us and say, "Boy, you sounded so formal up there with each other, almost like you didn't know each other," and so on. And mm. but it's part of uh, as I mentioned in in the airplane and in business, we try and treat each other as. Uh, equals working together, not as husband and wife in a family relationship, because um, it, it's the the equals giving respect to each other uh, with courtesy and. Uh, um, kindness, if you will, that is reassuring to passengers in the airplane and employees in the company. So we've
2: gone from uh, battling each other in the airport to now being told when we go to flight safety and uh, that they, that we do the best crew resource management of anybody they have. And, oh, wow. Uh, and uh, So we really we r- really enjoy doing it, and, and it, I take great pride in doing it. It's a great well, deal we've of been, satisfaction. we've
3: been flying airplanes together as the sole uh, pilot-co-pilot swapping legs, airplanes that require two pilots for um, 26 years now?
2: Well, 30, isn't it? We've... we've uh yeah. It, it, 30 thirty. Mm-hmm. Thirty years now. So wow. so we just can't get our math together. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well
3: I keep forgetting to update my clock as the years go <laughs> yeah. Yeah. on. Yeah.
0: yeah, that was four yeah. years ago.
2: Yeah. I look in the mirror and I go, What the hell happened here? You
0: know <laughs> So um now you mentioned the two pilot airplanes, but of course you've flown all the types. Um you've one of the few I guess, maybe the only pair and certainly some of the only few people who are rated pretty much in everything you can do. Mm -hmm. And so why why did you do it? In all the
3: categories and classes. Now,
2: just recently, the FAA started uh, uh, issuing uh, a powered lift the people who flew uh, the V twenty two Osprey, yeah, uh, and and we, there's no civilian airplane that you can get powered lift in, but they they get it in the military and they come back and they've been getting that under certificates. We we don't have that. So well,
3: every category and <laughs> class is civilian. You know,
0: I guess yeah. yeah. the there you yeah, go. There you go. So was that a goal, kind of starting out, or did you just one day say, hey, let's just learn everything. Let's just go have some fun. We're gonna you know expose ourselves to all that aviation has to offer it didn't
3: start out at all as a goal it started out because first of all we learned to fly obviously single engine and then we needed a multi-engine for our travel and we were just very enthusiastic about flying uh we were teaching ground schools up in alaska where of course there's a lot of float planes and we looked at and people were inviting us to go with them in float planes and we looked at that and said you know if we're going to do that on any kind of a regular basis and we went to Alaska teaching for 10 years Hmm. uh, we really ought to um, to get a float plane rating and so we did and, um, and then our uh, commercial float plane. Yeah,
2: We, we just enjoy learning and particularly enjoy learning about flying and we've probably had more opportunity than other people and we just always took advantage of the opportunity and so it became more of a case of well we ran out of stuff uh, than trying to re- make a goal of getting everything we just simply mm-hmm. used every opportunity and we had lots of opportunity and but we really liked learning. Yeah.
3: Part of what happened is we were very, very fortunate in that we have a good friend who was a friend of the chief pilot for the Fujifilm uh, airship, Fuji yes. Fujifilm blimp.
0: Of course, the hardest one to and get. It is, that, it is. That huh?
3: is the tough one because there's no flight school for yeah. flying blimps. It's on-the-job training. And at the time, the Fuji folks were looking for, they, they were doing a lot of camera flying for events like, for instance, the US Tennis Open, which runs for, like, uh, 21 days, and they would be up on 12-hour days every day of those 21 days with an onboard camera. Mm. And they had a standard crew of three, but you're going to wear three pilots out pretty fast doing that kind of it's flying. It's actually though. the
2: hardest thing uh, that we fly. Of all right. the things we've flown, it's really? the hardest thing to fly. Huh. Um, and uh, that's counterintuitive. It looks like just a, a big bag of helium floating in the sky, but it's very hard to fly.
3: Things don't happen fast, but yeah. The problem you know, is sometimes they don't happen. You know? <laughs> in, in a helicopter, for instance, if, if you if you want to go to the right, generally you can just almost think, I want to yeah. go right, and the helicopter will do it. That's right. And in the blimp, we used to have times where a passenger would come up and, and say to us, you know, are these controls hooked up backwards? Because <laughs> I see you've got the yoke all the way over to the right, and the airship's turning left. Oh, wow. And we'd say, well, we have the yoke. All over to the right because the airship is turning yeah. left. Yeah. it's yeah. A, uh, mm-hmm. It you ask it to do something, and sometimes it thinks about it a while, and usually says yes, but sometimes says no. There was
2: mm-hmm. a long, long delay before whatever. Right. Whatever yeah. Was
0: yeah. yeah. And in fact, I heard uh, from one guy who flew. He says, "Well, you're just not going to come out of this career with a clean record because at some point, it's just going to do what it wants to do, and you'll probably put it in the trees." That's and, true. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. Ab-
2: yeah. absolutely. If, if, absolutely. If you, if you want an accident-free record,
0: don't fly a blimp. Yeah. <laughs>
3: And it's yeah. the only aircraft that we've flown where you really do have potentially an emergency takeoff.
0: That's actually a great segue to the next thing I want to talk about, which is uh, risk management. I mean, people have heard of judgment and aeronautical decision making, but you guys boil it down to this general concept of risk management, which which now is really important with the Airman certification standards. So why why are you so passionate? Why are you risk evangelists?
2: Well, we. we got started and got our passion for it from when we were traveling around the country uh, traveling to a circuit of cities and we'd very often come to the same city every couple months and sometimes we'd have someone come up to us and say hey John Martha did you hear about Bill we go no what about Bill and well he got killed in an aircraft accident and we began to realize that that this was happening far more than we wanted it to happen and so We had a student. I had a student in my class one time with about fifty people in the class. I had a guy who was um, uh, uh, both an Episcopalian priest and and a radiologist. He was a physician. He was a pillar in his community, and. And had a lot of respect. But, but the problem, from my standpoint, is, is he wouldn't come back to class on time. I'd have 50 other people in the class, and and he would want me to repeat the stuff he missed when he didn't come back on time. He would blurt out questions in the, in the middle of the class. And and I, I became concerned that he wasn't following uh, the conventions of, of a classroom. And so when the FAA came to give the test, I said to... Uh, to them, you know, you're going to have to talk to Dr. I'll call him, I'll call him Dr. Williams. I think he's going to kill himself in an airplane. And the FAA inspector said, well, John, I can't just pick someone out of your class and give him a lecture because, because you tell me I need to. He'll call his congressman. And I said, well, if you don't, he's going to kill himself. He says, well, you talk to him. And I said, well, I'm just a traveling ground instructor. He's not going to listen to me. So neither one of us did. And back home, a couple weeks later, the phone rings, and the guy says, John, this is Del Thought And he was the F.A. inspector. He says, I thought you'd want to know uh, Dr. Williams is dead. Oh, and that wow. just hit me. Uh, like a thunderclap. I, I was just stunned by it. And I made the decision that never again was I going to see something that I thought... That, w- that might be deadly to people and not do something about it. I was never going to let somebody put that guilt trip on me again. And, and, and as time went on, uh, we got into the video business, and I began to realize that what we said could make a difference. And I thought I had an opportunity, and then I began to realize I think I've got an obligation to do something. And at the same time, when we were teaching these students who were getting killed, uh, we were teaching them Uh, to prepare for the knowledge test, and the questions on the knowledge test were tricky, they were trivial, they were obscure, the FAA just wanted to differentiate between people who say knew about ADF and people who really knew ADF, and so they wound up asking trickier and trickier questions. So we got into this syndrome that that the aviation community would prepare people for tricky and obscure questions, and so the questions got even trickier and more obscure, trying trying to get people to miss questions.
3: In the meantime, the, the FA was not asking practical, uh, risk oriented, operational questions that might make a difference in whether that uh, pilot lived or died. Mm-hmm. And that really got to us. That bothered us.
2: Yeah, and, and so I, I kind of feel I'm a little bit uh, I'm, I'm odd man out on this. I, I think uh, that th- things like uh, talking about uh, judgment and aeronautical decision-making and five hazardous attitudes, all of those are a little bit insulting to the person you're talking to. You, the
3: vocabulary is not really acceptable to the listener.
2: Hmm. You, have, you have a, a 40-year-old uh, learning pilot and a 20-year-old instructor, and today, the, and the, and the instructor says, today I'm going to teach you how to make a decision. And the 40-year-old is very likely to say, I don't think so, kid, yeah. uh, or "Or today I'm going to teach you judgment. And once again, the response is going to be, I don't, I don't think you're going to teach me judgment. But if you tell someone there are risks associated with flying an aircraft that are different than many other risks that you face in your life, you need to learn about those specific risks, how to identify them them and 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 develop a habit of mitigating those risks and if you start teaching a a learning pilot from their very first flight lesson the habit of identifying and mitigating risks, you're likely to come up with a with a pilot who has learned to fly who does this habitually doesn't even isn't even aware that they're thinking about risk and managing risk the whole time
0: yeah yeah and I think it's you know one problem with judgment is you can't just say to somebody well you need good judgment you need better judgment because they don't know what the risks are in the first place
3: right and there's and it doesn't give them any guidance on how to have it better and so in our view the risk management approach is teaching a process a way of thinking about Uh, the flights that they're going to do, and that's why we like using the the PAVE checklist, uh, looking at risk in terms of the categories of the pilot, the aircraft, the environment, and external pressures operating on the person uh, when they're planning a flight, and then once they get in the air, Uh, using the uh, checklist CARE or or C CARE, uh, uh, the first C is think about the changes that are happening during the flight. Uh, The second C is what are the consequences of those changes? The A is what alternatives do do I have at this point? The R is deal with reality always make sure that when reality changes I'm changing what I need to do and again thinking about the external pressures. It's a a process and a way of thinking uh, that is a tool that can be taught just like uh, if someone was learning to scuba dive or to mountain climb, rock climb, there are uh, habits that you teach them uh, that they learn in order to make it uh, enjoyable and less risky.
0: Yeah.
2: So I, I think part of what we're hoping for is a, is a pilot who's situationally aware that things don't catch them by surprise, and particularly the risks associated with flying.
0: Yeah, and it's, I, I think that's something that previously, if you don't have that risk um, sort of approach to it, it's like that's what you learn at the hangar, right? It's a, I think right. it was 500 hours before I talked to somebody who said I would never fly single engine at night. And the thought had never even occurred to me not to fly single engine at night, you know, but these guys uh, you know, the ones who have that experience, they learn the risk over time.
3: Right. Well, the thing is that experience is a very tough teacher because experience gives the test first and the lesson only comes afterwards, provided you survive the test to get the lesson. And unfortunately, not everybody does. Yeah. So um, that, but that's the goal of the Airman Certification Standards, the ACS, it, to integrate risk management into the whole training process and the evaluation process, not in terms of uh, this is the correct answer and that's a wrong answer, but do you have a thought process and a procedure where you're thinking about these issues and coming up with answers and ideas and alternatives even if they're different from what I would have come up with mm-hmm. you're thinking about them
0: yeah that's right and so um, the new Airman certification standards of course you guys are um, you were involved um, in the process but uh, but part of that is that uh, of course you you feel passionately about it just individually and as flight instructors but there's um, you know you're in the business of teaching pilots you have king schools and so you 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 uh, you have that that interest there that uh, that passion about it
2: Well, the the thing is... That I think aviation attracts a spectacular group of people, and very often you'll find someone did something that appears to be stupid, but you get back into who that person is, and they're they're wonderful contributors to every community they're involved in. They're just a wonderful group of people, and I think the real tragedy is is that if when when we fail as a community to help this pilot understand the risks that they're taking, um, we've we've deprived that community uh, of a contributor to the community Community. We've deprived them of a family member uh, and someone that uh, uh, a spectacular human being. So I, I think uh, it's that uh, we we have a real obligation to do well by the, our other members of the aviation community.
0: Yeah. So, uh, John Martha, I know I need to get you to your next appointment, but really quickly, uh, give us a, an update on uh, on the business on King Schools and uh, tell folks where they can find you.
3: Okay. Well, we're uh, we've just finished doing a. Uh, A complete redo of the uh, private pilot and instrument rating uh, practical tests courses uh, in HD and uh, oriented on the new ACS standards so that uh, there's, we've always incorporated some risk management into it, but now it's much more structured and so that's incorporated in there and gives people a a model of how examiners are going to be evaluating and instructors might think about About risk management. For that, Um, we've also are updating all of our courses to HD, and the private course is uh, has about a lesson or two to go, and uh, it'll be done. And then we're moving on to the instrument, and they can reach us at um, 800-854-1001 or Kingschools.com.
0: Great. Okay. Thank you both for the time, and enjoy your. What is it now? What do we decide? Thirty something, Oshkosh? Uh, um, I think
2: it's about thirty. At, at, at least thirty. Wow. Thank you very much, Ian. Thanks.
0: All right, David. Um, is your wife a pilot?
1: She's a good co-pilot. She's, but she's good. not. A, she's not a pilot, and uh, no,
0: not yet. I, I wonder. Listening to them, sometimes it's like you know. There's always the the jokes about driving with your spouse and everything. And I just think it, they're amazing to me how well they fly together and the fact that they do it safely and that they've figured out a system and everything else. A good
1: handoff. Yeah, yeah. You not. You got to have a good handoff, and you got to know how to address the other and and show the respect. Yeah,
0: it's very cool I like stuff. It. Yeah. Okay, that's it for Hangar Talk this week. Our editor is Austin Hanson. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David
1: Tulis. You can find us on aopa.org slash talk or email us at hangartalk at aopa.org. We're now on iTunes and also at Sporty's Takeoff app.
0: All right. Thanks, David. We'll see you next time.
1: See you again. <laughs>